Welcome to the Center for Thomistic Studies Colloquium Series Podcast. Each episode of our Colloquium Series Podcast features a member of the Center or a visiting scholar presenting a philosophical paper on a subject of their research. In this episode, we will hear Dr. Turner Nevitt of the University of San Diego giving a talk titled, How to Be an Analytic Existential Thomist. And without further ado, our podcast. So the title of my paper, I think you all saw, is How to Be an Analytic Existential Thomist. I told my friend Gaston that I was going to write a paper with this title, and he said, oh, in other words, how to be Turner Nevitt. <laughs> but, um, uh, and I suppose that's true. Um, just last night I was looking at Jilson's memoir, and he says in the chapter on being a Thomist, the only legitimate reason to call oneself a Thomist is that one feels happy to be one and is anxious to share this happiness with those who are receptive to it. And it's in the spirit, really, of, of what Jolson expresses there that I wrote this paper. I'm happy to call myself an existential Thomist, happy to be one, and I'm anxious to share that happiness with others. And in this paper in particular, what I want to explore is ways of sharing the central insight of existential Thomism, Aquinas' insight about existence, with contemporary analytic philosophers. Um, Contemporary analytic philosophy is dominated by a view of existence which differs radically from Aquinas' own. It's a view that traces to Frege, Russell, Quine. Um, you could say that it traces to Kant, but there are important differences there. Anyway, Frege, Russell, and Quine express this view of existence in different terms, but I think they have a shared view. Uh, and I think it's easiest to explain that shared view by contrasting it with what I'll call the common sense view, which is, of course, my view. Uh, the common sense view is that existence is similar to other properties we ascribe to individuals or objects. And when I say properties, I mean that not as a translation of Aquinas' term proprium, but I just mean the word property in the way that we use it in ordinary English. <clears throat> Given this similarity... Uh, between existence and other properties we ascribe to individuals or objects, statements of existence, whether singular or plural, are similar to other statements ascribing properties to individuals or objects. So, for example, when I say uh, Barack Obama is intelligent, I ascribe a property to an individual, namely the property of intelligence to the individual Barack Obama. When I say tame tigers are harmless, I ascribe a property to a number of individuals, namely the property of being harmless, to tame tigers. And according to the common sense view of existence, statements of existence are similar. So when I say Barack Obama exists, I ascribe a property to an individual, <coughs> namely the property of existence to Barack Obama. And when I say tame tigers exist, I ascribe a property to a number of individuals, namely the property of existence to tame tigers. That's the common sense view of existence. Okay. The contemporary analytic view, the dominant view in contemporary analytic philosophy, is that existence is not similar to other properties that we ascribe to individuals or objects, because existence is not a property of individuals or objects at all. And accordingly, statements of existence, whether singular or plural, are not similar to other statements ascribing properties to individuals or objects. 
Instead, on this dominant contemporary analytic view, existence is a property of properties, namely the second level or second order property of having an instance or being instantiated. And statements of existence ascribe this second level property to properties themselves. They do not ascribe any properties to individuals or objects. So to stick with the same examples, uh, when I say Barack Obama <coughs> exists, I'm not saying that Barack Obama has the property of existence, since there is no such property on the dominant contemporary analytic view. Rather, I'm saying that a certain property has an instance or is instantiated. Just what I'm saying will depend on the properties associated with the name Barack Obama, if there are any associated with it. But what I'm definitely not saying, according to the contemporary analytic view, is that Barack Obama has the property of existence. Okay? And again, when I say tame tigers exist, I'm not saying that any tame tigers have the property of existence. Rather, what I'm saying is that the property itself of being a tame tiger is instantiated or has one or more instances. That's the contemporary view of existence and its ascriptions. So the contemporary view is often put by saying that existence is what is expressed by the existential quantifier, the backwards E, interpreted as meaning <coughs> there is an X such that, and then you fill in the blank, or for some X, and then you fill in the blank, whatever you want to say about X. According to the contemporary view, every sensible use of the word exists can be paraphrased without any loss of meaning in terms of the existential quantifier. And since the existential quantifier is incomplete without a first-level predicate, every sensible use of the word exists can be paraphrased in terms of the existential quantifier and a first-level predicate, other than the predicate exists, of course, which is not recognized as a first-level predicate. So according to the contemporary view, existential statements are all equivalent to statements of the form EXFX, backwards E, I mean, EXFX, interpreted as meaning there's an X such that X is F, or for some X, X is F. Uh, the precise interpretation of the existential quantifier is not that important here. What matters most is that the quantifier not be interpreted as involving any first-level use of the predicate exists. Any such use of exists to ascribe a property to individuals or objects is merely apparent on the contemporary view, and it has to disappear in the appropriate paraphrase in terms of the existential quantifier and a first-level predicate. Okay. So those are the two rival views of existence, what I'm calling the common sense view and the contemporary view. And as I said, the contemporary view of existence is almost universally held among uh, analytic philosophers, but a growing minority of them are calling it into question. And the reason is that, as Colin McGinn says, the contemporary view is riddled with problems. McGinn himself focuses on four such problems, and I only have time for one, so I'll just give you one. But I recommend his book to you. It's called Logical Properties, the first chapter of which is on existence. It is, I think, the single best critical treatment of the contemporary view of existence uh, available from a contemporary <coughs> analytic philosopher. Uh, but he's not alone in this. There are lots of uh, analytic philosophers now coming to question the the dominant contemporary view, and to defend a view much more like Aquinas' <clears throat> own. So anyway, uh, the first problem, and the only problem that I'll discuss with the contemporary view of existence, is that its analysis of existence in terms of property instantiation presupposes existence. Since an individual or an object has to exist in order to instantiate any properties. 
Here is Colin McGinn's example, which I think is quite effective. So take the statement, planets exist. There are planets. <coughs> planets exist. And now consider Vulcan, the mistakenly posited intermercurial planet. Does Vulcan instantiate the property of being a planet? If it does, then the analysis of existence in terms of property instantiation is mistaken, since Vulcan does not in fact exist. And so it's instantiating the property of being a planet doesn't show that planets exist. But if Vulcan doesn't instantiate the property of being a planet, of course that can only be because it does not in fact exist, which shows that existence is presupposed by property instantiation rather than being explained by it. That suggests that the existential quantifier can just as well be interpreted as meaning for some x, x exists and is, and then you fill in the blank with a first level predicate. And in that interpretation of the quantifier, the use of exist there would be first level. Of course, no defender of the contemporary view of existence would allow such an interpretation of the existential quantifier, but the point is that even if it were always possible to replace the predicate exists with the existential quantifier, which in fact it's not, it isn't always possible to do that, it's only possible in a fairly limited range of cases, but even if it were possible, always to paraphrase the term exists in terms of the existential quantifier, that alone would not show that existence is not a property of individuals or objects, since existential quantification presupposes existence. And that presupposition, I think, is why the standard way of arguing for the contemporary view of existence by conceptual analysis fails. Uh, that's, that's one of only four problems with the contemporary view of existence, which I just uh, want to share with you. There are others which are perhaps even more interesting, but that, I think, is the most fundamental. Um, and so Colin McGinn and others, in light of these problems with the contemporary view, have recommended a return to the common sense view of existence. Um, a number of philosophers are, are making this return to the common sense view of existence. They differ on a lot of uh, points, but they all share a commitment to two theses, which I'm going to say constitutes the common sense view. The first is that existence is something real that individuals or objects have. It's a real feature of individuals or objects. The second thesis is that existence is sensibly expressible by a first level predicate, by which I mean a predicate that can attach to a proper name, that can ascribe things to an individual or object like Socrates or Plato, right? Um, and I think it's fairly clear that Aquinas's view of existence is a version of what I'm calling the common sense view. I think Aquinas also holds both of those two theses. I don't have time to prove that to you with quotations from his texts, um, but I think that that's uncontroversial. There are a lot of other details to Aquinas' view of existence, important details, um, and I don't want to minimize their importance, but those specific details about Aquinas' theory of existence can't even be proposed within the context of contemporary analytic philosophy without first defending the common sense view as the right general approach to existence. <coughs> uh, for most contemporary analytic philosophers reject the common sense view and for what look to them like good reasons. So for the rest of the paper, what I want to focus on is strategies available for defending what I'm calling the common sense view of existence in the context of contemporary analytic philosophy. Um, let me see. All right, 10 minutes. Um, 
So any defense of what I'm calling the common sense view needs to do at least two things. Uh, one, it needs to defend the sense of ascribing existence to individuals or objects, because most contemporary analytic philosophers following Frege, Russell, and Quine think that ascribing existence to individuals or objects is nonsensical. So a defense of the common sense view needs to defend the sense of ascribing existence to individuals or objects. The second thing it needs to do is uh, defend the reality of existence as a distinct property of such individuals or objects. And again, I mean property in the, in the common uh, ordinary English sense. I'm not talking about appropriate, okay? Just about a feature or an attribute of individuals that we can name with proper names. Um, there is a strategy for uh, defending the sense of existence descriptions adopted by philosophers like Barry Miller and Peter Geech, which I think is a good opening approach to this problem. What Miller and Geech and, in fact, others do is begin with the prima facie evidence of such ascriptions of existence already present in the English language. We ascribe existence to individuals or objects quite often, um, and it's common sense to take those ascriptions as uh, being what they appear to be, which is ascriptions of existence to individuals or objects. So Miller and Geech begin with these common uses of the term exist. Let me see if I can find some of Miller's examples. They're nice. Um, Socrates exists, Socrates is no more, Socrates might never have existed, John does not know that this beach exists, Joseph is not, and Simeon is not. That's a quotation from the Bible. Before Abraham was, I am. That's a quotation from the Bible as well, from the King James Bible, hardly to be dismissed as bad English. <laughs> uh, so um, Miller and Geech begin with these sorts of examples, which are quite common in our language I used to think, because I read a, a lot of analytic philosophy about existence, and they would commonly say, oh, you know, ordinary people don't use the word exists. And uh, this is a philosopher's term. And I thought that for a time. But I started uh, paying more attention to the use of the word exists. And it's actually rampant. You will find it all the time, if you listen for it. You don't notice it, of course, but just uh, try for a week. You know, log how many times you hear the word exists used of individuals or objects. And um, you'll be surprised. It, it's, it's, it's quite common, actually. And non-philosophers do this. My wife does this. Um, <laughs> and uh, she's not a philosopher. She's a historian. I mean, um, she has a doctorate. But anyway, I couldn't live with a philosopher. So, um, OK. No one can. <laughs> no, I can. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, you can't live with yourself, either. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was just expressing sympathy for his wife. <laughs> oh, God help us. Okay. Yes. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, um, Anyway, so Miller, Miller and Geach start with these ordinary uses of the predicate exists to ascribe uh, an attribute to individuals or objects, and then they try to answer the objections 
against uh, taking this evidence at face value, the objections that uh, try to show that this use of the predicate exists is, in fact, nonsensical. And the most common reason to think that that use is nonsensical uh, is, um, well, the rival contemporary view of existence. So on the contemporary view, the predicate is or exists is a second-level predicate that describes the second-level property of being instantiated or having an instance to a property itself. So when I say there are men or men exists, I'm saying that the property of being a man has instances. And it would be a category mistake and then, of course, nonsense to apply such a second-level predicate to an individual or object at the first level. If I said there is a Socrates, that, that's obviously meaningless. And the thought is that to say Socrates exists must be meaningless as well. So there are lots of uh, second-level properties like this. Um, numerous, for example, that's one. Or rare or scarce. We say make myself scarce, but it's a joke. Um, but uh, you can say men are numerous, you know. Uh, but you can't say, well, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is numerous. That conclusion is nonsense. And the reason is because numerous is a second-level predicate. It ascribes a property to properties, namely the property of having many instances, being numerous. And you can't describe it sensibly at the first level. Uh, and if existence is a second-level property like numerous, then, of course, ascribing it to individuals or objects is equally nonsense. This was, this was Russell's objection. And uh, I think this objection begs the question against the common sense view of existence. And the reason is because the proposition Socrates exists, or other propositions that ascribe existence to individuals, is only shown to be nonsense by assuming that the only sensible use of exists is a second level use. But of course, whether there is a sensible first level use of exists is precisely what's in question. When Russell was pressed in discussion about the possibility of a distinct first-level concept of existence, he fell back on another standard objection to uh, that first-level use of existence, which I'll move to in just a moment. Um, the important point that I want to emphasize now is that it is possible to agree with the contemporary second-level analysis of exists for general existential propositions like men exist, while still accepting the common-sense first-level use of exists for particular existential propositions like Socrates exists. Uh, and a number of contemporary analytic philosophers actually espouse such a two-sense view of existence, that it ascribes a, a property to individuals or objects when it's attached to a proper name, and it ascribes a second-level property of instantiation when it's attached to common names like men. Um, other philosophers, though, doubt the adequacy of any second-level analysis of existence. So Colin McGinn, for example, he rejects completely the second-level analysis of existence and thinks that all uses of exists should be construed as first-level. But either way, a first-level analysis of singular existential propositions like Socrates exists remains so far possible. Okay. The second most common reason to think that exists cannot be sensibly predicated of individuals or objects is that doing so seems to lead to a paradox. This is the reason that Russell fell back on when he was pressed about this in a question and answer period. This is from uh, a series of lectures that he gave on uh, the philosophy of atomism, it, it's called, which was published in the, is that in the Monist? 
or uh, maybe it's in mind. I, I don't know, but, but it's been since published as, as a book, The Philosophy of Logical Atomism. Anyway, um, so this is the second most common reason to think that exists is uh, nonsense when ascribed to individuals or objects. Um, if, if exists can be predicated of individuals or objects, then it looks like all affirmative predications of existence are tautologies, and thus necessarily true, and all negative predications of existence, all denials of existence, will appear to be contradictions and so necessarily false. For in order to affirm or deny anything of an individual or object, you have to identify an individual or object, either by naming it or by pointing it out in some other way. Once you've successfully identified an individual or object, what more could you possibly mean by affirming existence of it? When you affirm existence of an individual or object, you only seem to be saying what's already presupposed by successfully identifying it in the first place. So affirming existence of such an individual seems tautological. And if existence is presupposed to successfully identifying an individual or object, then denying existence of such an individual or object seems contradictory. This is the objection to a first-level use of exists that Russell uh, fell back on in, in a question-and-answer period after he made the first objection, which I claim to beg the question. So Barry Millers and, and others point out that this objection wrongly conflates the bearer of a name with the referent of a name. A name can have a reference now without its bearer existing now, since otherwise it would be impossible to say things like Mr. So-and-so is dead, as Wittgenstein pointed out. Uh, Miller thinks that a name can only have reference if its bearer exists or has existed, but others doubt even this restriction on the reference of names. For it seems absurd to suppose that I can think about, want, fear, love, or hate what has not, does not, and will not ever exist, which I obviously can do, um, but yet think that I can't sufficiently identify it in order to refer to it. Anyway, whether or not reference should be restricted to what has or does exist or not, the above objection still fails since we can refer to individuals that existed but no longer exist. Uh, so it's not the case that we can only affirm or deny exists of what does exist, as the objection supposes. And as Howard Robinson points out, even if the objection supposition were true and reference were in fact restricted only to what exists, that alone would not show that there's anything wrong with the predicate exists itself. Yes, sheer affirmations of that predicate would be tautological and sheer negations of it would be contradictory, but that would only be a matter of those linguistic contexts. There would still be non-redundant and non-contradictory uses of exists in other linguistic contexts, such as those embedded within the predicates ceased to exist, might not have existed, no longer exists, and so on. The same is true, this is Robinson's example, of the predicate is a thinking thing, is a thinking thing. This predicate is perfectly sensible in itself, and yet in the first-person context, it leads to the same kind of paradox. I am a thinking thing seems tautological. I am not a thinking thing seems contradictory. So, um, those are the two main reasons to think that a first-level use of exists is nonsense. Um, even if a first-level use of exists uh, can be shown to be sensible, however, that doesn't prove that existence is a real and distinct property of individuals or objects. We need some positive reason to think that existence is indeed such a property. So I want to turn to this second uh, 
goal of any defense of the common sense view of existence, defending the claim that existence is a real and distinct property of individuals or objects. Um, Barry Miller has a way of trying to defend existence as a real property of individuals, and I think that strategy is one that a Thomist cannot accept, uh, or at least should not accept. You lose your Thomistic cred if you accept it, at least in my view. Uh, and the reason is because Miller's entire defense of the reality of existence is based upon a view of the relationship between language and ontology that Aquinas does not share. It is the Frigean view of that relationship, which I think is just the opposite of Aquinas's view. Miller is helpfully explicit about this view of his on the relationship between language and ontology. Here's what he says. In seeking to describe something of the actual categorial structure of the world, I shall be following Frege in maintaining the priority of linguistic categories over ontological ones. This is simply the claim that the categories of the things we talk about are to be determined by the linguistic categories of the language we employ to speak about them. In other words, the way in which the world is sliced up mirrors the way in which our language is sliced up by logical analysis. Miller goes on to insist that this is not a form of idealism since he doesn't think that the structure of reality is constituted by our language, but only that, is, that it is apprehended by the logical analysis of our language. And his entire defense of the reality of existence is based upon this view of the relationship between language and ontology. He really spends all of his time defending exists as a first level predicate. Once you've shown that exists is a first level predicate, you then can draw the conclusion that existence is a real property by the assumption of Frege's relationship, view of the relationship between language and ontology. You read your ontology off of your language. So the way you get the ontology you want is to defend the language you want, you see? And that's Miller's approach to defending the property of existence. He answers all the objections to taking exists as a predicate of individuals or objects, and then he draws the conclusion that existence is a real property. There's a bit more to his defense than that, but that's the essence of it. Uh, and I think that that assumption about the relationship between language, well, he doesn't take it as an assumption. He gives an argument for it, actually. But in any case, that view of the relationship between language and ontology, I think, is not a Thomistic view. It might look as if Aquinas agrees with Miller about the relationship between language and ontology, since Aquinas, for example, thinks that Aristotle's 10 categories can be established by attending to 10 different modes of predication. That looks like reading ontology off of language. But Aquinas adopts that procedure for deriving the 10 categories because he thinks that diverse modes of predicating follow diverse modes of existence. Diverse modes of predicating follow diverse modes of existence. Uh, Monsignor Whipple explains the reasoning behind this procedure very helpfully. Here's what he says. As Thomas sees things, supreme and diverse modes of predication ultimately follow from and depend upon supreme and diverse modes of being. It's for this very reason that Thomas thinks we can discover these supreme modes of being by proceeding in the opposite direction, as it were, by beginning with diversity in the order of predication. Now, this is the very view of the relationship between language and ontology that Miller rejects. Namely, quote, the view that linguistic categories reflect ontological ones, end quote. Okay? So um, even if Aquinas thinks that you can read your ontology off of your language, which I don't think he does, but even if he does think that, it's not for the reason that Miller does. 
which is involved in Miller's defense of the property of existence. Uh, but Aquinas doesn't even think that you can read your ontology off of your language. For example, he thinks that we cannot do without abstract terms such as whiteness or humanity. These are the only means that we have of referring to the forms or qualities signified by the corresponding concrete terms such as white and human. And yet Aquinas thinks that the presence of such abstract terms in our language should not lead us to posit the real, existing, the real existence of any corresponding abstract entities. He makes this point clearly in his discussion of the signification of abstract terms in his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics. The structure of reality cannot just be read off of the structure of language, Aquinas thinks, because language only reflects reality indirectly. Quote, for the way that words signify does not follow the way that things exist directly, but via our ways of thinking. For thoughts are likenesses of things and words of thoughts. End quote. Aquinas then notes that we can distinguish things in thought that are not distinguished in reality. This is how he thinks we get the abstract concepts signified by our abstract terms. And it was precisely the failure to realize this difference between how we can think of things and how things are in themselves that Aquinas thinks led Plato and his followers into the mistake of positing really existing abstract entities, universals. Aquinas instead opts for Aristotle's conceptualism over Plato's realism about universals. You can call it moderate realism. I think it means the same thing. I'll, well, maybe not. Therese Corey and I are in an email fight about this right now. But anyway, um, whether you call Aquinas's Aristotelian view conceptualism or moderate realism, uh, the point is that um, our abstract way of thinking is enough to account for the signification of our abstract terms without us having to posit corresponding abstract entities. That's the point I wish to make now. Okay, so Aquinas doesn't think that you can read your ontology off of your language. And so this, this positive strategy that Miller develops for defending the reality of existence uh, is one that a Thomist cannot accept. Okay, um, but what I think is interesting about Aquinas's criticism of Plato's um, failure to recognize the uh, relationship between thought, language, and reality is it, I think, points a way forward for another way to defend Aquinas' view of existence in the context of contemporary analytic philosophy. It suggests a different positive strategy for defending Aquinas. And the reason is because this critical treatment of platonic forms and their relationship to language shows, I think, that Aquinas takes what contemporary analytic philosophers call a sparse rather than an abundant approach to properties. So on the abundant view of properties, there are just as many properties as there are predicates. <coughs> properties are abundant. They are as abundant as predicates. On the sparse view of properties, there are fewer properties than there are predicates. There are more predicates than there are properties, okay? Uh, on the sparse view of properties, um, you need a reason to posit a property. The fact that there's a predicate in your language is not taken as sufficient reason to posit a corresponding property. You need a reason. So the sparse view of properties operates on something like a principle of parsimony, like Occam's razor, or what's pop popularly called Occam's razor. Um, and there might be all sorts of reasons for positing a property because they do some explanatory work, like explaining the resemblance of the possessors of that property, or explaining the causal powers of the possessors of that property, and so on. 
Of course, some people think that properties explain the meaning of predicates, and that's why they adopt an abundant view of properties, because then you need a property to correspond to every meaningful predicate. But anyway, Aquinas isn't such a person, I think, as his criticism of Platonic forms makes clear. Um, I don't have time to go into Aquinas' criticism of Platonic forms. I think it's very interesting. I wrote a paper on this called What Has Aquinas Got Against Platonic Forms? So you can look that up if you wish. It's supposed to come out at some point. One of Aquinas' main reasons for rejecting Platonic forms, I think, is this issue of parsimony. He thinks that Plato's forms can't explain any of the things that Plato posited them to explain. And for that reason, we shouldn't posit them. There's no good reason to posit them. Um, he multiplied entities unnecessarily <coughs> in order to explain something with them that they don't actually explain. I can't go into the details of that criticism, but I think it shows that Aquinas takes what I'm calling this sparse approach to ontology, where you need a reason to posit an entity or <clears throat> a real feature of your ontology. Recognizing that Aquinas takes such a sparse approach to ontology <coughs> suggests, I think, a better positive strategy for defending his common sense view of existence in the context of contemporary analytic philosophy. Aquinas thinks that the predicate exists uh, <coughs> signifies existence, and he thinks that existence is a real property of things. But why? Why does he think that existence is a real property of things? What is his reason? What is the argument for this? What's the proof? Aquinas, I think, never quite considers this question. The closest he comes to doing so is when he defends the real distinction between essence and existence in creatures. But most of Aquinas' arguments for the real distinction, I think, would beg the question if they were presented as defenses of his view of existence, since they assume, I think, too much of that view. Um, David Tweeten, Tweeten, how do you Tweeten. He has a paper on this in which he goes through all the arguments for the real distinction. He shows how all of them would beg the question if they were presented as arguments for Aquinas' view of existence as a real and distinct property of things. So um, what's the title of that paper? It was published in two different places. It's in the, it's in the Feshrift for Father Dewan. Yeah, it's called Really Distinguishing Essence from Essay. That's in Wisdom's Apprentice, the Fesher for Father Duan. It's in a volume of the Proceedings of the Society for Medieval Logic and Metaphysics as well. Um, anyway, so, but Aquinas' sparse approach, sparse approach to ontology suggests, I think, another way of defending his view of existence. Um, on a sparse approach, as I keep saying, your ontological commitments are determined by the contribution they make to your best descriptions and explanations of the world. And so one way to defend Aquinas' view of existence is by appealing to its descriptive and explanatory usefulness. Aquinas himself puts his theory of existence to a lot of use. Um, it informs his approach to a wide range of issues in metaphysics, um, such as the problem of the one and the many, his approach to substance and accidents, change and causality, the analogy of being, the metaphysics of creation and participation, the nature of God, proofs for God's existence, and much more. It informs everything. It was so interesting. I, I have just, okay, I, I, I think I have enough time, so I'll just mention this. In, in that same chapter of Jilson's uh, memoirs, he's talking about being a Thomist, and he says that um, he spent 20 years reading Aquinas on all of these issues that I just 
listed off all of these metaphysical issues without realizing the central importance of essay to those explanations. Jolson says he spent 20 years reading Aquinas without realizing the importance of, of, of essay to, to all of those issues. And I was struck by that. I, I thought, but if uh, Jolson reads and uh, doesn't get it, I, I've got no hope. Um, but um, anyway, let me give you some examples of uh, the use to which Aquinas puts his view of existence in metaphysics. So to take one purely historical example, Aquinas's view of existence lets him preserve the uniqueness of divine simplicity while rejecting universal hylomorphism. Universal hylomorphism is the claim that all creatures are composed of matter and form, including incorporeal substances such as angels, even they composed of matter and form. Uh, universal hylomorphism was a popular view in Aquinas's day, partly because of how straightforwardly it preserves the absolute uniqueness of divine simplicity. God alone is simple because God alone lacks the composition of matter and form. Everything else has the composition of matter and form. That's universal hylomorphism. Nevertheless, Aquinas rejects universal hylomorphism since he thinks that it's absurdly committed to spiritual matter. He thinks that that notion is absurd. So he has a problem. He's got to preserve the uniqueness of divine simplicity in some other way. Universal halomorphism can't do it for him. But his view of existence as a uh, real and distinct feature of things can do it because his real distinction between essence and existence in creatures allows him to see composition in everything but God but a different kind of composition, now no longer of matter and form, but of essence and existence. Then in God alone would essence and existence be identical. You can't get that result, though, unless you see existence as a real and distinct feature of things. If you take the second level view of existence common in contemporary analytic philosophy, you're not going to get that metaphysical result. Okay? Um, so that's one historical use of this theory. Um, to give another example, well, I guess I'm running out of time, but I think that you can also use Aquinas' theory of existence to account for the relationship between God's primary causality and creatures' secondary causality. The quick way to do it is to say that God's causality causes the existence of creatures and the secondary causality of creatures causes their essence. If the essence and existence are really distinct in the effect, then you can avoid the overdetermination of your primary and secondary causes in the same effect. You can't avoid that overdetermination uh, if the essence and existence are identical in the effect. At least, uh, okay, that's controversial, and you'll say, oh, that's not how Aquinas does the primary, secondary causality between God and creatures. I know that, but anyway, um, okay. <laughs> Frederick Fredoso has a lot of very interesting articles on this. Aquinas suggests such a way of approaching primary and secondary causality in the sentences commentary, but his later way of, of dealing with that problem is, is, is different, which I grant anyway doesn't matter. I'm just um, trying to give you some ideas of uses for this theory of existence. Peter Geach discusses three other applications of Aquinas' theory of existence. Um, for example, it allows Aquinas to explain increases and decreases in the intensity of a quality such as whiteness. Such changes in the intensity of whiteness can be explained as changes in whiteness's existence rather than in changes in its essence. It doesn't stop being white. It just gets whiter somehow. What, how are you going to explain that? Well, if you take existence as a kind of intensifier, um, as a kind of actualizer, then maybe you can explain the increase and decrease in the intensity of the quality that way. 
Um, another use that Geach mentions is that um, Aquinas' view of existence can explain the distinction between members of a common genus. Since two human beings are as human beings so far alike, the fact that they're distinct can't, explain, can't be explained by what it is to be a human being, which they have in common. The fact that they're distinct can be explained by their distinct existences instead, which are proper to each. But again, you can't get that explanation of their distinction without positing existence as a real and distinct feature of them. Okay? This is something like Aquinas' genus argument for the real distinction. Um, I've often found it puzzling for scotistic reasons, but we're not going to get into that. Okay. Um, third thing that Geach mentions is that Aquinas' theory of existence can explain how the thought of an X is indeed of an X, because you posit two different modes of existence for X. One in reality, natural existence, another in cognition, uh, cognitional or intentional existence. And again, you can't do that without seeing existence as a real distinct feature of things. Okay. Um, these are just some of the uses of Aquinas' theory of existence that, that Geach men mentions. They're not all equally persuasive, but I think they represent an overall positive strategy for defending Aquinas' view of existence in uh, contemporary analytic debates. Um, and just to conclude, I want to mention a few areas of contemporary analytic philosophy where Aquinas' view of existence could likely make useful descriptive <coughs> and explanatory contributions. So this will be my closing point, because uh, I'm basically out of time. So the first area of contemporary analytic metaphysics in which Aquinas' view of existence might make a helpful contribution is in the area of essentialism, which is often understood in terms of existence. You say a property F is essential to an object X if X cannot exist without being F. It's a very standard way of getting at e essentialism. But it's actually fairly hard to uh, do this on the contemporary analytic view of existence. I don't have time to get into the details, but Colin McGinn points this out. It's a deeply puzzling use of the um, term existence there for this analysis of essential properties. One of the problems is that it makes existence an essential property of everything, but that's not the problem that McGinn goes into. Anyway, I think this is one place where Aquinas' view of existence can possibly make a contribution. Another area is in substance attribute ontology. The best contemporary attempts to give an account of substances and attributes in terms of their relative independence and dependence run into problems. Again, I don't have time to get into the details of the problems, but Aquinas' view of existence could probably improve on these accounts of substance and attributes since his view makes it possible to recognize different modes of existence, different kinds of existence, an independent and a dependent mode in terms of which substances and attributes can be understood. The third area uh, in which Aquinas' view of existence can make a contribution, this I think is the most exciting one, is in an emerging area in contemporary analytic metaphysics called ontological pluralism. I don't know if you've heard this phrase, ontological pluralism. This is the new analogy of being. Ontological pluralism is just the new hot name for the most maligned Aristotelian Thomistic doctrine, the analogy of being. Uh, there have been a number of recent attempts to revive this classical doctrine of the analogy of being in contemporary analytic philosophy. Um, Chris McDaniel is uh, one person who's doing this. He's just written um, an entire book on this. He, he, he published a bunch of articles on uh, ontological pluralism, and, and he has a new book out now. Um, it has a really cool title, The Fragmentation of Being. 
That's what it's called. Anyway, but he's got a bunch of articles. Um, degrees of being, ontological pluralism, and the question of why there's something rather than nothing. A return to the analogy of being. Being and almost nothingness. Ways of being, and on and on. He's got a bunch of articles trying to revive the doctrine of the analogy of being. Um, all right. Ontological pluralism calls for a view of existence much more like Aquinas' own. The reason is because instantiation, the contemporary analytic view of existence, is all or nothing. It doesn't come in modes or degrees. A thing is either instantiated or it's not. A property either has an instance or it doesn't. It's just on or off. There aren't degrees of instantiation. There aren't kinds of instantiation. Um, so if you're going to talk about ways of being, degrees of being, kinds of being, modes of being, you're going to have to have a view of existence much more like Aquinas' own. Instantiation won't do. Um, so this, I think, is another place where Aquinas' view of existence could make a positive explanatory and descriptive contribution in a contemporary analytic metaphysical debate. So just to sum up, um, I hope to have shown that there are a number of strategies available for defending Aquinas' common sense view of existence in the context of contemporary analytic philosophy. I think the standard analytic objections to the common sense view can uh, be answered. Many of them, I think, beg the question. Um, we have strong prima facie evidence from our own language to think that a first-level use of exists is indeed meaningful. Uh, and the reality of existence as a distinct feature or attribute of things can be positively defended, at least in principle, by appeal to its descriptive and explanatory usefulness. These might not be the only strategies for defending Aquinas' view of existence in the context of contemporary analytic philosophy, but I think they are one good way to try to be an analytic existential Thomist. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Center for Thomistic Studies podcast. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, and leave a five-star review, which helps others discover the show. The Center for Thomistic Studies is based at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, and it is the only graduate philosophy program in the United States uniquely focused on the thought of St. Thomas. If you are interested in future talks and events at the Center, please like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Studies to receive regular updates and news. For more information about the Center, please visit us online at stthom.edu slash cts. That's s-t-t-h-o-m dot e-d-u slash c-t-s. Thank you.